The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. Support from this podcast comes from Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. Bethany offers in-person and distance learning options and generous financial aid so that students can answer a call to ministry in service without taking on additional debt. Students choose from a variety of graduate certificates and degrees, including the brand new Master of Arts in Spiritual and Social Transformation, combining faith formation with professional growth. Learn more at bethany.edu slash M-A-S-S-T. In this episode, we are going to look how the quest for security, especially through our investments, is causing Indigenous people to suffer and even be annihilated. And we'll also look at what how we can live differently. So good morning, Sarah. Hi, Sherry. So Sarah, I think maybe my favorite chapter of your book, and it's hard to um, you know pick one, your book, which I will mention is called This Land is Not Empty, Following Jesus in um, Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery, available at all booksellers. Anyways, my favorite chapter is probably the geekiest one, which is chapter seven, and it's called Follow the Money. And in it, you basically pull back the curtain like they did in The Wizard of Oz, and you reveal how colonization is continuing into the present. Like you really look at the nitty gritty of how that's happening. Yeah, you know, the doctrine of discovery is often talked about in the past tense, you know, and I hear people sort of complaining or even lamenting things that have happened. Um, and saying to themselves, hey, you know, it's really sad that Native Americans were killed in the settlement of the United States and Canada, but there isn't really much we can do about it now. Um, some people even talk, um, sh- you know, with shame, sort of taking responsibility for the actions of their ancestors, um, which I appreciate because, you know, I do feel like lament is an important part of the process I'm working towards repair. But what few people recognize is that the process of displacement or displacing indigenous people from their homes so that, you know, those people with power can appropriate and settle indigenous lands, that's happening now all across the world, including in North America. Um, I was shocked to learn of this reality really through my work in Suriname, South America. Well, as was I, um, I mean, as you've told me, the story of how you sort of discovered that, um, it was really revealing for me. It, can you tell me the story of the Wyana woman you met who didn't want to go to the hospital because she was afraid that when she got back home, her actual home house would be gone? Because that story in particular, somehow just, I got it. Like the curtain got pulled back for me somehow with that story. 
So could you tell that story? You bet. And so um, in this story, um, you know, this is the early days of working in in Suriname when I was working there. And we went to visit this um, community that was um, being displaced by a large um, development project. And um, so this isn't mining, it's just development. And, um, you know, we were sitting in a, in a community square, just listening to people in the community share what was happening um, in their experience and from their point of view. And we'd been there maybe eight hours, you know, it was a long day, um, it was an exhausting day. And of course, we're working with translators. Um, I can't directly understand what the people there are saying in their own language. And so, um, you know, at the end of this long day, it's really just a listening day. You know, we're not saying a lot. We're just really listening to, to what is being shared and processed with us there. And this woman who is an elder, um, talked about, you know, she stood up and shared and, um, you know, was, you know, an older, you know, she was an elder, she's an older woman. Um, and you know, explain that she has diabetes and she had to travel to the town um, to get treatment. And when she came home from getting her treatment, um, her um, there was a gate where the village had been. The village was basically gone. There was a gate around the land where the village had been. You know, there had been a a, a, <clears throat> a land title transfer actually. Um, in Suriname, it's a concession. There had been a concession that was made and um, her garden had been bulldozed and basically her house was gone, you know, and, and, and the, the community that she lived in, they were all sort of hanging out outside the gate. And so, you know, here's this elder woman, um, where is she going to go and what's she going to do? And, you know, at that point she was looking at me, um, directly and said, are you going to help us? You know, are you going to help us? Yeah. So that, that, um, experience was a shocking experience for me. And she really put me on the spot and, um, said to me, um, if you're not going to help us, then go away. Hmm. Well, it was sort of your, that was your call story, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's when you got involved in that's when you jumped, I think, with both feet into the struggle. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, because I think, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, in my experience, I think she kind of picked me out of this. I was on a research team at the time, and I think she picked me out of there because I was the one non-Anglo person, you know, the the one indigenous person on the team. And she was really pointing at me, yeah. asking me. Yeah. So just for Listeners who may not be as familiar with some of these words, when you say a concession, can you say what that is really quickly? Sure. So it's just, you know, it's like a, it's like a lease, but it's a little more formal than a lease where, okay, because of the doctrine of discovery, the national government, um, basically has the rights to all of the land that's not privately held. And so they have the opportunity to concess or to just sort of give the rights to another entity to use the land. Um, and, you know, they pay for that. So it's like I said, it's like a lease, but a concession is a little more formal. There's, you know, there's money exchanged. And so 
the, the government has a system for how they're going to how they're going to determine that. And in the context of this story, the people that are living there in that space just don't have any say over it. You know, they just don't get to they don't have a say, even though this is like their ancestral lands as what yeah. I understand. That's right. And they don't they don't have land rights. Right. And so a concession could be in this case, you said it was a development project. I'm assuming right. like, you know, housing or hotels or maybe something yeah, like exactly. that. But the eco resort. Uh, eco resort, uh, but it could also just as easily have been mining or you know some kind of extractive something. Um, yeah, right. And I would say in in this region we had, we've most frequently worked in mining, but it's not the only kind of extractive industry. I would call this eco resort extractive industry yes. too. It, it causes deforestation. And often when people say, oh, you know, let's find sustainable development, community development, they'll say, oh, eco resorts. It's like, man, that is rough if you're one of the people that happens to be living there. Um, yes. I mean, I think that I, I was thinking of that when I was talking about, you know, mining as extraction, but it's kind of insinuating that the eco resort wasn't, but it is, it's the same part of this extractive, um, kind of dynamic, uh, logic that's happening. And I think what I want to communicate is that, you know, these kinds of forced legal removals are happening all over the world. And with that forced removal comes as you just heard, we just heard all these major human rights abuses, and it include extrajudicial killings, legal pollution of indigenous lands and waterways by extractive industries that cause disease and death. And your chapter seven in your book will talk in very concrete terms about how these atrocities are allowed to occur and how they're absolutely legal. And you specifically look at how economic development and international aid, which, you know, prior to me meeting you and talking through this, I thought those are good things, economic development and international aid. What could be wrong with them? That they're basically causing colonization to occur all over again. And, you know, you specifically look at this case study in Suriname of how neocolonization is occurring through something called the Suriname Land Management Project. That's right. And so these policies that dominate and displace, um, you know, they operate globally. And, you know, I would say um, that that it's just this process of colonization that's ongoing. You know, it never stops. Right. It's, just, it's just a drumbeat that goes on and on. And this goes on, including in North America, you know, as we see with the pipelines built across the Midwest and coal and gas and uranium mining on indigenous lands. And around the world, indigenous peoples are being denied rights to their own economies or their own, you know, their, their ability to seek uh, a livelihood, um, their traditional hunting and fishing lands, and the removal of environmental protection for lands and waters that they depend on for food and shelter in the name of economic development. You see this in Canada um, in, in the legislation C45, where all of these bodies of water were taken out of environmental protection, many of them on indigenous people's lands. Um, and all of this is done in the name of making money. Um, and I think that the, there are kind and generous people um, believe that, um, that somehow we're just missing something. So activists, Sherry, like me and you, um, 
that somehow we just missed a step. And if we only understood how it worked, we would be able to quickly, you know, sort of find a solution. Um, they, these kind of kind and generous people believe that our system is really good and democratic and that um, the analysis that I'm sharing now can't really be true. And, um, you know, often after I speak, I'll get a bunch, you know, a whole slew of emails saying, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried this founding? You know, have you tried this nonprofit? It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've been, we've been around the block a few times. And, you know, frankly, this is the perspective of the privileged who can't imagine that the systems that have benefited them, that they have benefited from for generations could cause so much damage to others. Um, you know, and I've come to realize that the process of displacement and exploitation is not removed from congregations, um, well, the church in general, and that includes congregations and parishioners that invite me to come and speak to them. That's what I really wanted to talk about, Sarah. And I want to be clear that I'm pushing this conversation, not you, not that you haven't pushed the conversation before, but I mean, you write and talk about it a lot, but I think you're sometimes understandably a bit wary of talking about it because, you know, it is so challenging to people like me, people with privilege. I mean, I just want to say what you just said again, because I think it's so important that this is the perspective of the privileged who cannot imagine that the systems that have long benefited them could cause so much damage to others. So obviously it's really challenging to hear that and to take that in. And I really feel like we do need to just, like I was the one who said, no, I, we really need to talk about this very directly on this podcast. And not that you don't want to, but I think, am I correct that sometimes it's just like, I mean, maybe like there's a, maybe it just feels like we're going to be like scaring off people too much if we actually oh, yeah. talk about this. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel like also, you know, I'm sort of a squeaky wheel about this issue. And sometimes it's like, Hey, give it a break. <laughs> so thank you for bringing it up, Sherry. I can, I can be tedious. Sometimes it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, probably friends and people who are invited to my house for dinner. It's like, Oh my gosh, when you get into an hour or two. You might want to make an excuse because you're going to get to the economic structure conversation. <laughs> All right. Well, here I'm uh, here. Let's just squeak away. Um, so could you talk about how congregations and, you know, people within congregations are connected to displacing and exploiting indigenous people around the world? Yeah, well, I, I'd be happy to talk about that. And first, I just want to start with a metaphor. You know, a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, this is so abstract. I just can't understand it. I don't understand all the economic stuff. So let's just imagine, just imagine with me. Um, that there is a giant spaceship that is hovering over Earth, and you know people have come and they're they have advanced technology. These are aliens from another planet, and they're really smart, and they're going to solve all our problems. And they say, "Okay, we're here. Um, you're so lucky. We're coming to save you. you. Guys are all screwed up, but don't worry. We're gonna we're gonna take care of this. And um, so from now on, we're gonna make all the decisions for you guys um, because we know that you're." institutions are corrupt and don't really work. And by the way, your spirituality is really screwed up too. And so we're <laughs> going to deny you the ability to do that. And what we've decided is that we're going to make some 
some preserves to to um, to preserve your biodiversity. And so we're going to, you know, we're taking everybody out of the state of Indiana. Indiana will now be cleared and nobody can live there because all that is going to be a resort. <laughs> and um, we're also going to take Texas. Texas is off the map. And everybody else, don't worry, we'll shelter you um, in refugee camps. So um, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> it's going to be fine. We're here. We're benevolent. We're going to teach you how to worship, you know, a different spiritual God. So you know, we got this. <laughs> so let's just start with that metaphor. That's the experience. Mm. Um, you know, that's the experience. So when we're talking about large scale mining and small scale mining in Suriname, South America, which is the place I know the best, um, you know, you have corporations like the Newmont corporation, um, which is a mining company based in Colorado. Um, and this particular corporation is responsible for the destruction of not just one people, but many, many distinct peoples living in the interior um, of Suriname in the rainforest. So mining destroys the river systems that thread through the Amazonia, the Amazon basin, and they displace, you know, mines displace traditional societies like the Wayana, not the Wayana alone, many peoples, but including the Wayana, who I talk about a lot, who are dependent upon the river for their livelihood. Mining zones are militarized, communities are displaced, they're denied access to what they consider to be their grocery store, which is the forest, denied, you know, they have um, deforestation that's occurring, massive contamination of the environment, um, and et cetera. So they're harassed, even killed for the ore that lies below their traditional lands, and communities are destroyed, and, and lives are destroyed for money. So mining processes load the environment with um, toxic chemicals like mercury and cyanide. Um, so a major mine in negotiation with the Matawai people in Suriname, in my presence, admitted to discharging huge quantities of cyanide into the river um, multiple times a year. And what was once considered a global disaster, so this kind of dumping would be considered a disaster, now has become a routine event in Suriname. So the nervous systems of indigenous adults and children who live in the region are ravaged by mercury, which is a neurotoxin. That is to say it destroys, you know, the, the, the human nervous system. So this toxin they're exposed to through the, throughout their lives due to um, artisanal mining, which is small scale gold mining. And they're exposed beginning when they're forming in the womb because the community is dependent on fish as their primary source of protein and mercury bioaccumulates. That means that as it goes through the food, food web, it gets um, stronger in, in, in its power until it's in a human body. It's, um, it's, it's biomagnified. It's, it, it has, you know, it's, it's more, more um, damaging than it is when it first enters the food chain. So while the mining industry is wealthy and powerful, um, the government of Suriname receives a relatively small portion of the profits um, for concessing the land or giving concessions to mining. Um, and so trade deals are negotiated with the help, oh my gosh, here's the nerdy part, of multilateral governance structures. So um, this is where the heads of state work through institutions like the Organization of American States, or the G20 to make deals. And the rules of trade are arranged to benefit the developed world 
so that those of us in developed countries can say, see, you know, we paid for the right to extract resources from this country and we do it legally. Um, in reality, this means um, polluting the country. So going back to our, our, our spaceship metaphor, this big benevolent advanced quote, advanced society says, hey, you know, we need this special resource um, and we're going to find that resource in New York and Montana and in Ohio. So we're going to need you to give up those states. We'll put those people in um, in refugee camps, too. And but we're going to pay you for that. So we're going to give you one percent of um, of the profit, not even the gross um, as we're um, as we're extracting the stuff from New York and Montana, and um, you know, et cetera. So that's the experience. Um, and I, you know, I guess I would just ask our listeners how you would feel if that were your reality. You're you're gonna, you know, maybe you're fine. Maybe you don't live in New York or Ohio or Texas or Montana or Indiana. You're like, gee, that's too bad, all these refugees. But maybe you do live in one of those states and everything that you have is gone. It's now gone. Yeah. And it's my understanding that a lot of indigenous peoples, I mean, aren't even getting that money. It's the government no. of Suriname that's getting it, Perfect. but they're not necessarily, they're not passing it down to the indigenous people. No, no. And so, you know, and that's a, the beauty of the doctrine of discovery or its genius is that the state is the one that owns it. And so they're, they're not obligated to share that with with those individual people. And so, you know, what, what a lot of, what, what I guess I want people to realize is that many denominations, I shouldn't even say many, almost all denominations are invested in mining and in mineral and oil extraction, you know, and our own denomination, Mennonite Church USA is invested in, in extractive industry. Yeah, I know. And I mean, I have a retirement account through the church and I don't really want to even single them out because as you said, probably most, if not all denominations are invested in extraction. And I'm betting few as a few of us have retirement accounts that aren't benefiting from mining and extraction and thus the displacement of indigenous peoples and the pollution of their bodies. Um, I mean, my husband teaches at a university and even though we have what I think is like the socially responsible, you know, investment account, I highly suspect that mining is still a part of it just to pick one extractive mm -hmm. industry. So here's my question. What can be done here? I mean, I know that one thing would be for me and my husband to totally divest from the stock, mar the stock market. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I can get to divestment in a minute. I don't think that's the most preferred route, but I, I guess, Shreya, what I want to do is just is just introduce the idea that individual level action is pretty ineffective. Um, yeah. What we have to do is work together across institutions. Um, and, and those of us uh, who are at this stage, which is hopefully most of us as time goes by and are sort of conscious of what our money is doing, we have to work together to get the institutions that we're a part of to take responsibility for extractive industry and, and for the damage extraction is doing. And so I want to talk about socially responsible funds. Historically, socially responsible funds really focused on no guns, no tobacco. That's kind of the, the core assumption. We're not going to invest in guns or any kind of weaponry or tobacco. Um, and so that's a pretty, not a big high bar, 
And so, um, you know, stuff like extraction is, is okay. That's up for grabs. And by the way, mining, you know, gold, um, uh, uh, bauxite, um, other rare earths that are used in industrial production and oil, coal, gas, fracking, all that kind of stuff. That's the economic engine <laughs> of the developed world. Right. And so that's not, that's not off the list of socially, you know, just uh, investment funds. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. we know we've investigated this, you and I have in our own church and, you know, that th we have heard, Hey, you know, this kind of the middle of the road. They're not really that bad. They signed on to this convention about wanting to do, you know, environmental good things. It's like, man, they're still extracting in a way that is causing death and disease and disability to the indigenous people in Suriname. So I don't care what statement they signed. Honestly, it's, it's, not okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that, that are really important to do. So if you, if you just divest from the stock market, which I've chosen to do, I would be really clear about that. But if, if you, if a church, let's say that a denomination says, we're just going to, you know, we're going to divest from, from extractive industry, you know, all that happens is that you sell that stock on the market and somebody else buys it. It has no impact on the, on the impacted, on the indigenous communities. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is to, is to work for accountability. If you're going to hold that stock, and I think it's a powerful thing to do for institutions to continue to hold that stock, um, is to struggle for direct negotiations between the mining company and the people that live there. There should be direct negotiations to figure out how that community is going to benefit from it and, and for them to receive redress for the impacts that they've already received. And so stockholders can make that happen. And I don't want to confuse this with um, shareholder responsibility. So shareholder responsibility is another sort of, you know, in vogue way of thinking about managing financial portfolios. And this is where you sort of petition the board. Right. And once again, it's just a statement. You're writing a statement saying, please do blah, blah, blah. You know, and they're very rarely effective um, unless, you know, unless you have a lot of, I don't know. I, I, I'm a critic of, um, of these kinds of, um, you know, social responsibility actions because it, what it does is it causes the people doing it to feel really good, but in reality, um, not a lot changes. Right. So another thing to do is to put pressure on the, the, the company to do direct negotiation. And, and I think, you know, instead of saying, Hey board, would you consider, you know, um, signing on to this convention or whatever, you could say, Hey, we need to hold talks. <laughs> Right. With people who are impacted. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of people get dividends from resource extraction. A lot of um, companies and, you know, um, institutions and individuals get, get dividends. And I do think whether you're an individual or whether you're a collective, it is wrong to take money from the suffering of people. It's right. just wrong. You cannot keep that money and feel good about it. And, and writing a letter to the board is not action. Um, I really feel that's just, that's just a case. You cannot say, well, you know, I, I get to keep this money because I'm doing a good thing. I think what you can do is set that money aside and provide it to the people that are suffering. I think that's possible to do. I mean, we've even thought about and talked about 
um, buying stock in mines in the name of indigenous communities, hmm. you know, saying, Hey, you know, if this is the way you're going to benefit from this, um, you know, this is a way, I mean, I haven't actually done that. Maybe just, it would, wouldn't it be interesting if we had enough money to put together to get in an interest or stake in, in the company. I mean, I think that would be, gosh, that would be really something. But I mean, in the meantime, it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to benefit from that. I'm not going to amass wealth. You know, if I have $30,000 or $50,000 invested in, in a mining interest, whatever I'm earning on that in a year, I'm going to set aside and find a way to get that to the community that's suffering from that. I don't get to keep that money. Yeah. Um, That's just my belief about that. So what I hear you saying, Sarah, is um, kind of two things. One is if you are invested in these extractive industries that are harming peoples to somehow, you know, basically set aside that money and try to give it as directly to those communities. And, and, and this other piece of working as collectives to approach these companies in whom you own shares or, um, and to say, we want you to negotiate directly with these peoples who are going to be displaced by the mining or or are reaping all of the uh, disadvantages of the mining and none of the benefits of it. So it's really, how do we support self-determination for indigenous people? It's interesting that in that you didn't specifically say to petition, you know, these like Newmont mining to stop the mining, because I think what's interesting about that is, 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 I guess we could do that. But what you're saying is no, like this is actually the indigenous people who are being affected by this need to be at the table. They need to have the voice and be, have the self-determination to work that out directly with the mining company, as opposed to someone, as opposed to shareholders trying to impose a solution there. Is that the correct way? Do I have that right? Well, yeah, I think you're right, Sherry, and you bring up an important point. You know, one thing I would say, too, is that if you stopped mining in Suriname today, like if you just stopped, like you got Newmont Mining and others to stop mining there, the impact on the environment is already so profound that causing them to go away, yeah, I mean, it's it's 10 times worse than the industrial pollution that happened in Minamata, Japan which is where most of the the study of the neurological impact of mercury, where that all happened, you know, after World War II. In Suriname, it's, you know, it's so much worse than that. So, so, so just saying, hey, you know, minds get out. I'm not, you know, first of all, I think you're right. It's not up to me to decide what's going to happen. The people that live there need to decide, but there also has to be redress. And by that, I don't just mean, Hey, you need to give them some financial Mm -hmm. compensation. They have to be given access to a livelihood and they get to decide what that is. How are they going to live in this new reality where the, where their access to a livelihood is gone? They have to be, they, there has to be some negotiation to take place to figure that out. And so I think what people often would try and do is go to legal structures and say, oh, well, you know, let's, let's petition their government and their government's like, Hey, everything we did was legal. So you're like, oh dear. Okay. Well, everything's legal. Well, that's that. Come on. You know, just because, I mean, my son said something to me really interesting the other day, which I think, I don't know, 
don't know. I just think it's pretty cool. He said, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's just. And this is where we as a church have the moral authority, I believe, to say this is not okay. It doesn't matter if it's legal. And, and sending a letter is not the way. We've, I mean, I don't even think you have to have, you know, 50% uh, stock, you know, stock share 10%. I think, I think a scrappy church mm, or denomination wow. could do this just by showing up in the country and saying, we are going to host talks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just saying we're an investor in your mind. And yeah, in your was, mining that's really interesting insist. to me, Sarah, because you I'm know? sure listeners I mean, I will be like, when they heard that. you say like sending that letter doesn't mean anything. They, I can hear people saying, well, then what, how could we do this? So I, that actually is really intriguing what you said of, I mean, what I find exciting about what you said, Sarah, is just like really thinking outside the box of how we have approached this in ways that I think might seem improbable in some ways to the people hearing it, but that I think in a way it like, what would I want to say? It excites my moral imagination. You know, what have we not thought of, of what we could do together that could directly, that could have an impact or that could at least, like we could at least try it and see what happens. And then and then do something else, which is what I've seen you do over and over again. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think, Sherry, you know, the what I would call the supranational structures, governance structures, supranational governance structures, I, and talk about nerdy, that's like the, the overarching governance, not the country, but, you know, sort of like the the in in the hemisphere where you and I live, this would be the Organization of American States. Those structures were created by human beings to benefit the people who created them. Right. If you want to know who a structure is is benefiting, look and see who created it. You know, and so I, I think trying to work within that structure and say, hey, let's petition the structure. Whatever. I mean, that we have to create something else. And I think the other thing to say to that, too, is that those people that created these structures, first of all, it wasn't very long ago. Um, <laughs> these are new governance structures. We are as smart as them. You know, I know that sounds so funny. It sounds very arrogant, but it's true. I mean, why are their ideas better than our ideas? I mean, I think. But anyway, I mean, we're not going to, like, figure out how to go create a new organization of American states. I think we should. But I mean, that's that's a big project. What I'm saying, though, is we could start advocating for the people impacted on the ground today. We don't have to wait. We can go do that now. We can go do that now. And we can say, hey, this is not OK. And we mm. are we are going to get in the way. We're, I mean, this is this is the heart of peacemaking. Peacemaking is not. Um, bearing witness. And I, I, I'm saying I know that's a controversial statement. There's nothing wrong with bearing witness, but you can't stop there. You can't, I mean, imagine, you know, some of the, some of the horrible things that have happened in human history where we knew genocide was happening. Yeah. Going and standing on the side, sidelines and bearing witness is yeah. not enough. Um, you also have to intervene, yeah. which, which means crossing the line, putting your own body in, in the mix. And so that's what I'm saying, putting your body in the mix. I'm not saying we stand in front of tanks. I don't think it's hard to get on a plane and, you know, in, in relationship with indigenous people, 
go to the communities impacted and well, say, Well, it's interesting, Sarah, as you, you say that. I mean, I know you, obviously, and Dan have this us. long relationship with Indigenous peoples in Suriname, but I think of all of the Mennonite Central Committee, you know, mission workers who have developed relationships with Indigenous peoples across the globe um, who have that direct connection with people on the ground who are being impacted by this. In fact, when we first did our, had our first Doctrine of Discovery, dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition booth at a Mennonite convention, I remember talking to you that the people who got the most what we were doing were often folks who had been, you know, MCC workers who were working with these indigenous communities and knew what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, working at the World Council of Churches level, which as you've, as you know, I've also done, you know, there are many indigenous leaders in countries across the world who are doing this work already and would so, they would be shocked and amazed and so encouraged by the presence of the church in their midst. Um, And Mm. so I guess what I would say in this, and I'm talking about indigenous leaders in the church, we're doing, waging this work alone, you know, on behalf of their own peoples. What would it be like if, if people from the dominant culture were showing up and joining them? I mean, and I have to say the doctrine of discovery, Oh my gosh! It's it, it, as I have talked about it throughout the world, the the um, the developed world, mainly in Europe and North America. You know, many church leaders are like, "Oh, it's so hard. It's complicated. I don't understand it." You know, there are all these economic relationships, and blah, I don't understand this. Man, in the developing world, talking with people in South America, the Pacific, um, East Asia, or I'm sorry, um, Southeast Asia. Um, all of these indigenous leaders, um, Greenland, um, including up in the Arctic Circle in Europe, they got it instantly. They're like, man, this is our fight right now. This is happening right now. Um, and there was no question. They were like, oh, you know, they didn't say, oh, it's complicated. It's so hard to do. They're like, yeah, this is my reality. <laughs> this is happening to me right now. You know, and so it's it's not as though it's like, oh, we have to go discover how to help the natives, man. Like, they are many native mm. people are well organized. Well, and, um, Sarah, where are I we? think where are we? I think that's I think that's that's it. I think I mean there's always a lot more to say, but I think I would like to end this episode with that question hanging in the air, where are we? Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean it does. And I, you know, Sherry, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go overboard. Like I often will mm. do and say, you know, where are we, who are we and where are we, you know, um, does not the great animator, the ancient of days, the spirit of life burn within us. Are we not the salt, the light? If we are who we say we are, um, this is the call to show up on behalf of life. You know, amen. <laughs> Once again, Sarah, I as I often feel with you, I feel like I'm in church. And uh, that's all I can say is amen. And may that call uh, burn within us. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DD of D Coalition and Anabaptist World. 
The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you. Hi, this is Sherry. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and for being part of the movement to dismantle the doctrine of discovery by doing so. Sarah and I are both so grateful for you. So I have a special appeal at the end of this episode and and at the end of our first season. The coalition that Sarah and I helped found is growing by leaps and bounds. People like you are eager to know the truth about systemic injustices like the Doctrine of Discovery, and you're eager to do something about it, which is fantastic. But to really harness this energy, we need to hire Sarah as a full-time organizer for our coalition. This has been a long-held dream of our organization to freeze Sarah up from her day job so she can work full-time on dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. So we are starting a campaign to raise a full-time salary for her so she can do just that. You can contribute to this campaign in one of two ways. You can make a donation to our coalition and say that it's for Sarah's salary. There will be information about how to do that in the show notes. But what I'd really like you to consider is this. Making an annual donation, actually pledging to make an annual donation to our coalition so that we can really make this position sustainable. Sarah can't quit her day job without knowing that she does have some kind of sustainable position in the future. If you have investments, I'd like you also to consider this. I'd like you to figure out how much money you make in profits every year from extractive industries and consider donating that money on an annual basis to fund Sarah's salary. It's not that hard to figure out this annual amount. There's going to be a link in the show notes to a blog posting from my church, First Mennonite Church of San Francisco, that talks about how and why to do this. As Sarah said, and as I believe, money that I make in my retirement account from extractive industries, that money does not belong to me. It belongs to indigenous people and to the struggle to dismantle this oppressive system from which I benefit and from which they um, are and by which they are, and by which they are oppressed. So I invite you to consider this. Thank you again for listening and thank you for being part of the struggle with us.